This week, many families across our country have lost loved ones due to coronavirus. Our brothers and sisters in Burkina Faso lost some dear loved ones as well, including a friend that was a deacon at Brother Marcel's church in Ouagadougou. Many more have put their lives on the line for the daily care of others, such as healthcare workers and first responders. Let's begin this morning by taking a moment of silent prayer for them all. Father God, we need your loving and guiding spirit so badly in this time. Please visit us through your word now by the power of your spirit and in the authority of your son's name. Amen. Psalm 146. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes or in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind, the Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. A reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1-11. through 11. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you have received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, So we preach, and so you believed. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we are so blind without you. Only you can give us real sight. The world and our fallen self twists what you have declared evil and calls it good. We lust for power, 
we grasp for control, and we don't realize we are subjecting ourselves to a master that seeks to bury us. Forgive us, Father, for twisting what you have called good and calling it lacking. Have mercy on us when we think we need to correct you, or modify your good ways so they serve our purposes, or to make them more palatable to the world. Instead, we surrender completely to you. We are at your disposal. We confess that we have missed your gospel. We confess that we have trusted in our own power. We have not concerned ourselves with the marginalized. We have not loved righteousness. We have flat not trusted you. You will bring the wicked to ruin, but through repentance, by the grace offered to us through the crucified Messiah, you forgive us all of these, and you build us up into your family. And we are thankful. Let that thankfulness be multiplied and result in the fruit of obedience and true discipleship. We pray for your gospel-following churches around the world. Don't let us lose sight of our true citizenship during this time we are not gathering. Let the churches that are able to stay in touch electronically do so. Believer to believer, continuing to disciple through speaking scripture to one another. And for those who are especially vulnerable, whether in lack of food, medical care, or the ability to communicate with each other, set their sights on you. Comfort them and give them richness in your love. Help us to know how to support those churches in need and those in need in our midst. And Lord, we pray for those who are ill or suffering right now. This is an especially trying time to be unwell. We pray for healing, bring an end to the illness and the suffering. Bring hope and endurance for those who are caring for a loved one who is unwell. Give them and the medical professionals great wisdom and compassion. Thank you for the patient care being provided by so many. May it all be supported by your steadfast love. We pray for those who are lonely. Show them the great love you have for them. Let your presence and reality be especially tangible to them through the church. In Jesus' name, amen. Peace and grace to you on this Palm Sunday of 2020. Wherever you are celebrating this Lord's Day, whoever you are, we welcome you in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit to worship with us today on this surreal start to the Holy Week. This last week, I have noticed a recurring theme in my conversations. Due to our isolation from one another, all of us are balancing many different tensions. On the one hand, we feel the need to gather information so that we can find out what's going on in the world outside our homes. That need is in tension with the desire to shut it all off and put our heads in the sand because we can't control anything anyway. A second tension is the desire to have a global perspective and realize that, for the most part, many of us in our homes have things pretty good right now. So many others in places like LA, New York, and across the world in developing nations have it far worse. And that is true, but many of us are also trying to balance that with the reality of our own situations and disappointments or sadnesses, even at the smallest thing. We're trying to balance different views and different perspectives. I think this is a point of focus for many because it's easy to quickly become myopic or narrow-sighted or even worse, blind, as we isolate in our own small world. Our reality quickly becomes all reality and we're blinded to the reality that God sees. 
And that is why it's such a fruitful exercise to be praying for both ourselves and for others on a regular basis. Praying for ourselves allows us to validate our own sadness and fear. But then we can also be praying for healthcare workers and first responders, grocery clerks, our government leaders, and on and on the list goes. Praying for our brothers and sisters in third world countries is a good thing because we recognize that they're faring far worse than we are. And this helps us gain perspective that we're not the center of the world nor of the coronavirus pandemic. If we don't do this, it becomes easy to make ourselves the center of reality, the center of truth, the center of good and evil, and the center of God's plan. There are a few places we have become more proficient at being me-centric than in our spiritual lives and the twisted views of the gospel that surround us today. Many have slowly fallen into a view of the gospel that is not about the fullness of the narrative of God's eternal plan, but it's only about self-interest. Rather than looking forward to the restoration of shalom and the provision of all creation, many of us have twisted the gospel to be about working the system so that it's about my comfort and my prosperity. Still more have twisted the good news to be about personal feelings and acceptance rather than the gospel's effect in saving us from our sin and bringing restoration to the cosmos. Slowly but surely, scales of blindness form over our eyes as to what the gospel truly is, and as a result, we're also quickly blinded as to what it is to be a disciple. That's why I'm so excited for the section of scripture we have before us today. I'm truly saddened that we are not able to study it in person. But as I told those of you that were present months ago during the introduction to the book of Mark, this section before us includes within it a hinge for the entire gospel. It is the bridge between the two sections of Mark. The first section is the work and ministry of Jesus that was to declare he is the Christ, the incarnate Exodus God. Come to earth in the form of the Son of God, sent to proclaim and show the kingdom of God. The second section is the path to the cross of Calvary and the necessity of Christ's atoning death and resurrection as the bedrock and the cornerstone of our faith. In this section, we're going to be blessed by the laser-like focus that the author places upon the truth of what the gospel is, who the Messiah is, and how that results in who we are to be as Christ followers. This morning, we will be blessed to have the scales removed from our eyes in bold fashion, In more ways than one this morning, we will see that the Lord opens the eyes of the spiritually blind. If you're taking notes, that's the title of this teaching this morning. The Lord opens the eyes of the spiritually blind. Let's begin by looking at the first section in Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. Here we see a picture of physical blindness. 
This is the first main section and teaching point for this morning. Mark gives us a picture of physical blindness. And he shows us Christ's ability to heal it. But this is an odd story, isn't it? I mean, after all, Jesus has healed everyone else in quick fashion, even from a distance by the word of his command. So what makes this different? Why two steps? Many commentaries view this as a closing to the previous section, but I think it serves as that as well as a precursor to the revelation of Jesus to follow. I have no doubt, nor do most theologians, that this was a historical occurrence. But why I think Mark chooses to use this story in this place in the Gospel of Mark is important. First, we can recognize that it absolutely captures the character and nature of Jesus, as many of the previous stories have, and puts a kind of closure to the previous section of Jesus' actions and ministry. Jesus is a loving Messiah who heals, not because of the prestige or fame, but because he loves those he has come to save. And he wants to provide a picture of the truth of what God's kingdom will be one day when all sickness is removed. In those days, saliva and the laying on of hands were both seen as medicinal tools. Now, as I said a couple weeks ago, I don't recommend using these in today's climate. That would be a bad idea. But it wasn't that Jesus was uneducated. It was that he was bound by the knowledge of the day within the fact that he was fully human. He's also fully God, but when it comes to this, fully human. So he acted within the medicinal tools of the day. But then also we see the nature of the kingdom he wishes to restore. This kingdom is one in which healing and restoration occur. In this action, he's showing that the desire of the Father is for shalom and wholeness, restoration and redemption. This is not a promise that it will break into the current broken world but a preview of what is to come when his eternal plan is fully put in place. But second, and maybe even more of the priority of why this is placed here, is because it's also a transition story. For eight chapters now, the question has been asked over and over and over. Who do you say that Jesus is? There were a couple of points where the disciples even verbalized this question. Who is this guy that even the wind and the seas obey him? The narratives have shown him as the incarnation of God in human form, as the Messiah, as the one to come to put all things right, as the victor over Satan, as the king of the kingdom to come. But in the midst of that, the reader or hearer of this gospel is presented with the repetitive obtuseness of the disciples. The literary task has been to bring the hearer of the gospel to a point where we ask the question, How do these guys not see it? Don't they realize Jesus is the Messiah? And this will be followed with a collective sigh of relief when Peter finally, in the next few verses, declares Jesus to be the Messiah, the Christos in the Greek, or Christ. But even then, as we will see, this is only partially right. Peter and the disciples are still a bit fuzzy on what that actually means. In essence, they can see but they still can't see the forest for the trees. Very similar to our brother in verses 22 through 26. What it took for him was a two-step process of sight being restored. And the same thing will be true for Peter and the gang. And so in this short narrative, the author is giving us an understanding in the physical of what is about to happen in the spiritual with Peter and the disciples. 
So let's continue reading with verses 27 through 30. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. The others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Here we see the second main section, if you're taking notes, a description of spiritual blindness. A description of spiritual blindness. Now, isn't this just beautiful? Once you understand the layout of Mark, you see the literary genius of this gospel. Written at least three decades after Christ's death and resurrection, this gospel was sent to circulate the churches as a tool of encouragement to the church, as well as of evangelization to those listening who had not yet fully stepped into fellowship with Christ. And so for those first century hearers, they are now presented with a narrative account that most likely mirrors the internal question that they are asking, who is Jesus? As with the story of Herod, the response is that he is a prophet, maybe even the incarnation of one of the greats, John the Baptist, or maybe even Elijah. But then Jesus asks the question directly of the disciples. Well, that's great, he says, that other people believe this or that, but what do you, you personally, what do you believe? Now, this was odd for a rabbi to ask a question like this of his students. You see, unlike Western education, rabbinic education was the other way around. Students would ask questions of their rabbis. So this is intended to make us stop and pay attention. So pause for a moment with me. Dear listener, I'm speaking to you directly where you're at. No one else, just you. Listen carefully to the question. It's great that your mother or father believe in Jesus as God, King, Savior, and Messiah. Maybe it's great that your grandparents or your friends or your spouse or your roommates believe the same thing. But dear listener, who do you say that Jesus is? What is your personal understanding of Jesus the Christ? Well, as the informal leader of the disciples, Peter speaks up on their behalf and he answers the question. He says, you are the Christ. Christos in the Greek, Mashiach in the Hebrew, Mashika in Aramaic. You are the Messiah, the anointed one of God. Now immediately here in Mark, we read in the words from Matthew 16. We don't have this in Mark, and so many of us having heard Matthew 16 in the same story in longer context, we read in these words. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now again, I have no reason to doubt that this was the historical event, and that Matthew gives us more of the fullness of the account. But remember, when you're reading the Bible, and especially the varying Gospels, you are not only reading for a record of the account of what happened, 
but more so you are reading to understand the point and meaning given to you by the author through their method of inspired communication. So what is it that Mark is trying to say to us by including this story without that affirmation? Why did he decide not to include Jesus' words of affirmation and anointing? Well, I believe the answer to that is found in Mark 8, 31 through 33. Look there with me. It says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Here we see that Jesus immediately starts giving them a corrective course on what it means that he is indeed the Christ, the Messiah. Peter was right overall. He had the general idea of who Christ was and is correct, but he did not see fully or clearly. He needed Jesus to correct him. And verse 33 emphasizes this for us. Not only was Peter a bit off in his understanding of the truth of the Messiah, but he was so far off that he was actually a hindrance to Christ and was rebuked for it. This is the extent to which Peter could see, but was also still blind. In Peter's description of Jesus as the Christ, he was innately still stuck in the worldly and military idea of what being the Christ or the Messiah meant. He was no different from zealot mercenaries still trying to get Jesus to be their military leader. You can even see echoes of this in Peter's desire to fight to free Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. We can only guess, but knowing that much of the political opinion in Galilee at the time was heavily zealot and against Rome, Perhaps it was the case that Peter, being a fisherman, scraping by financially, was one to buy into the idea that the Messiah was come to bring liberty and prosperity for Israel. This idea most likely appealed to him and the rest of the disciples. But in holding on to this idea, they were actually blind to the truth and blind to their own need for the truth of who the Messiah was and is. He was seeing Jesus as Messiah as clearly as the blind man was seeing Jesus the first time. And this was not just on Peter. On this Palm Sunday, we remember Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. In Luke 19, you see his disciples saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. But many of those same disciples were wandering around in stunned confusion by the end of the week, wondering what it meant that Jesus was Christ, but was now crucified. I wonder, dear brother or sister, how many of us listening, how many of us in the church, proclaim that Jesus is Christ, but we have no idea what that actually means practically in our lives. For many, it is just the second part of his name, like a last name. For others, Jesus is a good religious teacher that teaches us how to be moral and good. For others still, perhaps Jesus is the personification of all good feelings like hope, love, joy, and acceptance. Or maybe he's the imaginary best friend that they've always wanted. For many in the world, Jesus is their way to prosperity. They think that if I obey him, he will bless me with material prosperity, success, and health. 
Many of us as Americans would never admit that this is how we see Jesus, but as our world is broken apart and twisted by the coronavirus, and the associated societal and economic crises sure are sure to follow, our anger at God that life is not going well is betraying this false expectation in our minds, this errant theology of what the Christ is. You see, for many of us, myself included, the stress, sadness, brokenness, and sickness that surrounds us challenges and tests what we believe. Who do you say that Jesus is? Is that being tested right now? Well, it was for the disciples. And so Jesus corrects their half-right, half-errant view. He just gave sight to the physical blind, but now we see that Jesus provides sight to the spiritually blind. And that is our third major point for today. Jesus provides sight to the spiritually blind. Jesus provides sight to the spiritually blind. Here we see that Jesus provides sight to the spiritually blind in two ways. The first we have read through. He clarifies his mission as the atoning sacrifice to take away the sins of the people so that he can raise again as the victorious king. And secondly, we will see that he clarifies the role of the disciple that follows him. But let's focus on the first truth. He clarifies who the Messiah is and what his mission is. Notice that it says he began to teach them that the Son of Man. Primarily, we notice that this teaching is framed in a way that this is new information. He began to teach them. Secondly, what he was teaching them is that he was giving them insight into a deeper understanding of what the mission of the Messiah was. But then he uses this phrase, Son of Man. Now, this title has been used twice so far in this gospel. But what is truly interesting here is that Mark will use it now 11 more times in the second half of the gospel. Just as it says that Jesus spoke plainly about this issue, Jesus wants no confusion here. He doesn't speak in parables. He is indeed the one that has come and will eventually fulfill the fullness of the role of the Son of Man. You might remember us discussing this in chapter 2 when discussing his ability to forgive sins. But let's review by going back to the prophet Daniel in chapter 7, verse 9. Daniel, chapter 7, verse 9. Daniel has just finished describing a vision he gave to the ruler of Babylon about various earthly kingdoms shown in the form of grotesque beasts. He was describing the fact that the demonic kingdom of darkness and its leader, the adversary of God, the prince of this world, would rule the world through these human kingdoms that rise up and then are conquered and replaced by another. He was doing this to show where Babylon was in the timeline of the Almighty. So then he goes on to state who is really the highest authority, who is really the greatest king. And he says this in Daniel 7 verses 9 through 12. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. 
His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed, and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. He is here describing the creator and Exodus God, the God of Israel, Yahweh, and his relationship to the other kingdoms. They will hang out for a small season of time, but eventually they will be destroyed. And who will do this? One that looks like and is called the Son of Man. Take a look at verses 13 through 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Skip ahead to verse 27. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. The Son of Man will come to conquer all nations, including the Roman Empire, including Babylon, including the British Empire, the American Empire, the European Union, and he will eventually reign. So can we really blame any of the disciples for believing that the Christ, the Messiah, would be one coming to conquer nations in the name of Israel's God? We can't. But see, this is where the blindness kicks in. While we can't blame any of the disciples for seeing this truth about the Messiah because the prophets foretold it, we can also see that the Bible portrays the servant of God to come as one who would suffer and die. Both are there, both the victorious king and the suffering servant. So let's take a look at a few of those spots, shall we? First, turn with me to Isaiah 52. Isaiah 52, 13. Let's read through all of chapter 53. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. One of the anguish of his soul, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressor. Sundown on April 8th marks the beginning of Passover, in which the Jewish people commemorate and celebrate the Passover in which the blood of the Passover lamb placed on the doorposts of their home caused the passing over of the angel of death. I doubt many of us have understood the emotional undertones of that story as well as we do now in this season of coronavirus. Jesus is that Passover lamb. We, like sheep, have gone astray in our sin and separation from God, placing ourselves on the throne of our lives, making gods of ourselves. Yet Jesus stepped into human form as a lamb himself and was led to the slaughter on the cross of Calvary. Pierced for our transgressions, cut off from the land of the living, stricken for our sins. He was crushed so that you and I could become offspring of God, made righteous in God's eyes. Without this sacrifice, you and I, we deserve death. As the world is quickly learning, it is what we all deserve and is what all of us will succumb to, whether by COVID-19 or by some other means. We deserve death because we have separated ourselves from the source of life by placing ourselves on the throne of the cosmos. And while the disease of COVID-19 is overtaking the world, we must be reminded that long before that, the disease of our own sin was what brought us this promise of death. And yet God, by his grace, gave us a Passover lamb, the Messiah Jesus, by whose blood we might plead that death pass by us so that we might be raised righteous at the end of days. Because of Jesus, the first death, it does take our lives, but the second death has no power for eternity. This was in the midst of the scripture just as much as the statements that the Messiah would be victorious. Well, next, turn to Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is another well-known messianic 
set of scriptures. Psalm 22, starting in verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me, like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Skip ahead to verse 27. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. This messianic psalm gives prophetically, given prophetically to King David gives us a first-person understanding of the experience of the Messiah as he cried out to God, having taken on our sin as the atoning sacrifice on the cross. Notice that it connects clearly in verses 27 through 31 to the idea of the Son of Man ruling and reigning. This too was in Scripture. This too could have been understood by the disciples as to who the Messiah actually is. Well, lastly, turn with me to Hosea chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Hosea chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. It says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Let us know... Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Here the prophet Hosea is calling Israel to repentance. For the context of why, you can look through the book, but I would draw your eyes just a couple of chapters earlier to chapter 4. In chapter 4, specifically in verse 6, it says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. 
In the earlier verses of chapter 4, we see that the faithlessness of Israel has caused this relational breach. The people had drifted from covenant love of God and knowledge of his character, will, and law. They were doing whatever they wanted, acting in the same way as the world, mistreating one another in their homes and communities, proclaiming to know God, but acting in ways that denied his character. They, like Peter in our story today, had a glimpse of God, but did not see the fullness of his holiness. And so Hosea calls them to repentance so that they could be revived and on the third day resurrected. In our second reading from earlier, the Apostle Paul states the gospel and says that Christ rose on the third day according to the scriptures. No other scripture speaks to the third day as this one does. Hosea 6 was most likely seeing a prophetic picture of the risen Messiah. And so Peter, the disciples, and all those who were looking for a Messiah missed the truth of the Messiah's purpose and mission because they focused in on only those pieces of the idea of a Messiah that served their self-interest, that served them. They missed out on the wholeness of what the gospel truth about the Messiah was and is. Going back to Mark 8, we see Peter even say to Jesus, you can't do that. You can't die. And Jesus responds with vehement rebuke, as if to shout, Peter, if I don't die for your sins, you have no part of me and no place in my kingdom. And Peter's view of the Messiah, it made sense to him, but it made no sense when it came to the truth of God as expressed by the Bible. It made no sense to the mission of God in the midst of his people. Jesus has now given a corrective to the sight a corrective to the sight of the disciples as to the truth of his mission and what he came to do. But then he provides sight in a second way. Not only does he provide clarity on what his mission as the Christ is, he clarifies next the truth of a disciple. Let's take a look there at Mark chapter 8 verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it is come with power. Remember that the first century audience of this gospel was most likely Christians in Rome under persecution from Nero. Nero was a horrific tyrant that loved to kill and crucify Christians if they did not recant their belief in Christ as Lord. He wanted to hear them say that he, Nero, was Lord, not anyone else. To call them to bear their own cross was to call them to profess Christ as Lord, even if it meant death under Nero. To be a disciple meant the opposite of safety and comfort. It meant truly giving your life 
to profess that Jesus was Lord. Now compare that to our worldview today. One of the proofs that many self-professed believers are blind to the truth of Christ and discipleship is that when suffering happens in our lives, we cry out as if it is our birthright to be comfortable and prosperous. This betrays the fact that we are blind to the truth of what it is to follow Christ. What Jesus says so clearly here is that discipleship means stepping into the shame and suffering of Christ and walking out the path of Christ as people willing to give our lives for the fact that he is our Lord, to give our lives for the proclamation of his kingdom, the proclamation of his gospel. J.A. Brooks says this in his commentary on Mark. To deny oneself is not to do without something or even many things. It is not asceticism. It's not self-rejection or self-hatred, nor is it even the disowning of particular sins. It is to renounce the self as the dominant element in life. It is to replace the self with God in Christ as the object of affections. It is to place the divine will before self-will. And if we do this, we will notice that life in this world is quickly made difficult. We are quickly given over to ridicule and shame just as Christ was. This is what it is to be a disciple, dear brothers and sisters. This is clearly stated in the word. Listen to the words of Paul in Romans 8, 16 through 17. Romans 8, 16 through 17. It says this, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. Provided we suffer with him. How often do you hear this as part of the standard altar call? Give your life to Christ and you will find that life is hard and you will take part in the sufferings of Christ. You see, it's not attractive in the worldly sense because it requires the self to be dethroned. Many of the altar calls that I've heard in my life actually elevate the self. They make Jesus and his work subservient to the needs of the self. To follow Christ is not to be lifted up. It is to be the servant. To follow Christ is not to be comfortable. It is to be uncomfortable in our own sinfulness, uncomfortable in a world that rages against authority and holiness. To follow Christ is not a guarantee of prosperity. It's to be generous and giving so that those who are impoverished might be lifted up, that those who are in need are cared for. To follow Christ is to put aside our own agenda so that Christ's will might be done and his character might be shown. To follow Christ is not always to say the popular or kind thing. It is to actually reveal to the world that we are all in deep sin and in need of repentance and turning towards Christ. 
And right now, his character is not just seen in the loving kindness and service we show when the need presents itself in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. But it is also shown in the call to repentance from sin and the proclamation of the gospel that Jesus is Lord and King. The proclamation that he is the only one that can truly bring restoration to a world torn apart by the effects of being isolated from God and the call to return to the Lord that he might heal us. This message is just as crucial, if not more, today than it has ever been. That we as the world and as a society need to turn towards Christ, repent from enthroning ourselves, and instead make him Lord and King of our life. Whether this worldwide pandemic and economic instability is something more in the prophetic timeline of God's plan, I do not know. It could be just another pandemic in the history of many pandemics. It could be more. We do not know. But what I do know is that our call as a church to one another and to anyone listening is the same as it has been every Sunday that our church has been in in existence, that we respond to the gospel with repentance, turning from all we used to worship and adore, including the enthronement of self, and turning to the Lord with hearts submitted to his will, contrite and humble in our need, and full of gratitude and thanksgiving for his sacrifice on the cross for our sin. This morning, or whatever time you're listening to this recording, I want to ask you the question of if you know the gospel of Jesus. Dear listener, do you know that you are a sinner that deserves death for the ways in which you've rebelled against God and lived a life in rebellion towards him? Do you know that he died in your place, taking on the punishment for your sin? Do you know that he resurrected three days later, proving the price was paid and that resurrection after physical death into eternal life is now possible. Dear listener, this is the gospel. Proclaim it, believe it, and give your life over to Christ as king so that you can follow his will, no longer following your own. For those of us that proclaim to follow Christ that are listening, I want to ask us to point our eyes to the contrition and humility that Good Friday brings us this coming week. Mission Fellowship, I want to ask you to again join me in fasting this week. Let's fast together on Good Friday as a response to the Lord that speaks to the fact that we know that he has provided for our greatest need. And in the midst of this current season, Let us fast to acknowledge that we are in great need for his mercy and his healing hand. Join me in crying out to God this week in one voice saying, Lord, please open our eyes. Open my eyes to the fact that many of us have contorted the gospel to be about me, myself, and I. 
We have made it about my prosperity, my health, my happiness, my emotional need for acceptance, my rescue from my own bad decisions, my power over others, my need to be seen as hyper-spiritual, my cheap forgiveness taken as I continue in unrepentant sin. Father, forgive us. Please open our eyes to the fact that we have twisted the gospel to be these horribly errant things. Brothers and sisters, do any of these describe your view of the gospel? Perhaps it is time we ask the Lord to remove the scales off of our eyes, like he did the Apostle Paul. And even like he removed the spiritual scales off the eyes of Peter and the disciples in our text today, so that he might show us how we've contorted the gospel to be about ourselves rather than the enthronement of Christ and the restoration of all things. Yes, praise God that part of the gospel is the outcome that you and I gain eternal life. But the truth is, that is an overflow of the goodness of what it is to enthrone Christ. To have him as Lord over the world, restored in his proper place, over the world that he created, and the world that he loves, the world that he died and resurrected to restore. Let's imagine the disappointment that the disciples must have felt when Jesus said, Guys, I've come to die. It must have hit them like a ton of bricks that Jesus was not there to do what they wanted. But it was in repenting from this disappointment that the disciples were able to see the truth of God's truly good news. On this upcoming Good Friday, let's take time to sit in that disappointment that the early disciples must have felt by acknowledging the disappointment that the gospel is not actually about me, not actually about us. And then let's repent from this me-centric view so that we might rejoice in the truly good news, the good news that is not about us, but about Christ. The good news that is about his sacrifice, his action to save the world, his resurrection as victorious king. Let us confess and repent from the ways in which we have missed the point of the gospel and the mission of God because we have made it about me rather than the restoration of God's throne and the rule of shalom over all mankind. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles." Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. 
whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Dear church, let us see the gospel with clear vision this week. Let us understand with clarity what it is to lay down our lives for Christ as we love and serve others in our church family, in our homes, and in our communities. Let us understand with clarity that part of laying our lives down for Christ as our Lord is to no longer have ourselves as our own authority, to let Christ, his word, his spirit, and his people rule in our lives. Mission Fellowship, I love you all deeply. I miss you all greatly. I long for the moment we can sing worship to our King together. So may the love of the Father, the grace of the Son, And from a distance, the fellowship of the Spirit be with you all this week. Amen. Lord God, great and mighty are you. We are in awe of you and your holy word. Jesus, thank you for being our Messiah, Savior, and King. We are reminded today of our blindness without you. How quickly and easily we forget that you are sovereign when we face the unknowns in our world. Jesus, as you had compassion on the blind man and restored his sight, we are thankful for the reminder Hans gave us today that you have done the same for us. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to clearly see those around us still living in darkness, loneliness, and fear. May we focus our eyes on the needs of others, those in our neighborhoods, places of work, and in our own homes. May your church around the world, here in Salem, and Mission Fellowship love others as never before. Remind us that your gospel is always the same, no matter the circumstance. Jesus, you are King and Lord of all. We choose to focus our eyes on your eternal kingdom and ask that by the strength of your Holy Spirit, we would be your hands and feet to the world, steeped in fear, loneliness, and pain. We thank you for the fact that the gospel isn't about us. It's about Christ and his kingdom. As many of us have been forced to slow down due to this virus, let us not waste the extra time we have been given. May we spend more time in your presence, reading your word, meditating on your truths, and being fervent in prayer. May we be a people busy doing kingdom work, not because we have to in order to gain your approval, but because we desire to love and serve you, our King. Please, Lord, remove any scales that might be hindering us from seeing you your gospel, and the world around us clearly. May these words that we read today ring true in our hearts and minds this week and always. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, 
but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Amen.